Dan Pfefferman. And I'm Benny Shoulder, and welcome to Jewanced. We're two Jewish guys. We grew up in America, we live in Israel, and we're looking to challenge popular conceptions, think critically, examine independently, and most of all, seek nuance. Each episode will host a different guest. Together, we'll take a deep dive into politics, foreign affairs, religion, science, technology, food, the arts, business, you name it. A lot of it will deal with the Jewish world in Israel, but not all. Our goal? To create a platform where people share their stories, insights, and visions. No talking points, no script, no agenda. Just a deeper, nuanced understanding of the world around us. Join us as we explore, think, debate, and discuss, and perhaps most of all, listen. Juanced. You know, like like nuanced, but with a J? Yeah, they get it. Dude, let's just start. Greetings out there in podcast land, and welcome to Juanced, the show that brings you a nuanced exploration of Israel, the Jewish world, and beyond. I'm Benny Shoulder. I'm Dan Pfefferman. Together, we're excited you're here for another great episode of the show. Before we get going, I'd like to give a shout out to our audience watching us today on Facebook Live. Thanks for tuning in. For those of you listening on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and all the other podcast platforms, know that there's a live video version of the podcast where you can check out weekly. It's available on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash Podcast. Check it out when we record or watch all our episodes on our YouTube channel, Juwans Podcast, as well as our website, www.juwanced.com. Make sure you're following us on Instagram. We're at Juwanced on Twitter at Juwanced Podcast. And as always, make sure to subscribe to Juwanced, Spotify, Apple, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, we'd love it if you leave us a five-star review. It really makes a difference. How you doing, Dan? I'm good. I'm good. It's been a weird week. We have with us Shmuel Rosner here. We'll introduce him properly in a second, but... Uh, All right, so check it out. As you know, Juanced is a listener-supported podcast. We rely on the generous support of listeners just like you to make sure that we're able to continue to deliver awesome content, terrific guests, and interesting perspectives here on uh, Juanced. So if you would like to make a one-time contribution to the show, you can easily do that on our PayPal account. Even better. Even better. You can make an ongoing contribution to Juanced on our Patreon Find out information about how to do that. Go to our website, www.juanced.com. And I should say that Juanced, due to the support of listeners like you, is growing uh, leaps and bounds. Dan, I think that we have a running tally of something like, what, 90? 90? We have listeners in 97 countries. And that's not including the Facebook listeners. That's just the audio downloads. That's crazy. If you want to support Juanced, visit us today, www.juanced.com. We'd love your support. and uh, You can also sponsor us if you have a business or an organization that you'd like to plug to our audience, or you can book us for a Juanced Live, where we will do a live event, whether virtual or hopefully soon in person. To, we've done it already with uh, Meet the Emiratis for a number of Jewish communities, and we can do it on any subject that interests you, and we have a great network of guests that we can uh, bring to your community and uh, facilitate a fantastic conversation with them. Terrific. Uh, So next item on the show is our weekly COVID report coming to you from the always on-point perspectives of Dr. Natan Davidovich, director of R&D at BrainQ and a COVID data scientist. An incredible 84% of Israelis above age 16 have either received at least one shot or recovered from infection. This translates to 62% of the total population. 
We talked last week about how we are currently in a tug of war between the increased transmissibility of the mutated virus strains increasing the spread and the vaccines reducing the spread and death. Herd immunity is estimated to be achieved when somewhere between 60 to 90% of the population has immunity. So is 62% enough to tip the scales in our favor? This is a question that has implications on the whole world as it will help inform countries when and how it will be safe to reopen. There are some encouraging signs in the data, but it's still too early to tell. Despite the reopening and being around 10 days post Purim, our positivity rate continues to decline. Right now it's down to around 4%. Deaths continue to decline as well, likely a product of greater than 95% of people aged 50 plus getting at least one shot or infection recovery. On the other hand, new critical hospital cases have stopped declining and have remained pretty flat over the past two weeks. This could be driven by the large growth in Arab cases recently in combination with their relatively low vaccination rate. In the Arab sector, roughly 53% haven't been immunized or recovered versus 38% nationwide. Looking at the whole picture, we think there's reason to be optimistic that the vaccines will win this tug of war without the need of another major lockdown. And let me tell you, that's terrific news right in time for Pesach. The country is coming out of lockdown. It is. Although, you know, my, my daughter just got back to school. And uh, while I was driving here, we got um, a note from the teacher that one of the kids was um, sick. Yeah, oh, at Corona, oh. so they all have to go into, uh, all the kids oh. have to go into quarantine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With the, the kids are not, how old's your daughter? Uh, she's 14. 14, that yeah. Sucks. The kids under 16 are, cannot yet get quar- uh, um, vaccinated. Uh, my three neighbor's kids are all have been uh, quarantined for the past two weeks. But I was in Tel Aviv yesterday. You know, here, in, we're recording this from uh, the JPPI office at the Hebrew University, so it doesn't really change from day to day. But I was in... Tel Aviv on Evin Viral yesterday, and it was oh, it's completely opened. I mean, yeah. every restaurant was right. completely packed. It was like night and day from just a week ago. It was I, I, weird. I try to avoid the city because it's too full now. Yeah. It's just too crowded for my taste. <laughs> you, you like things when they're calmer and uh, quieter. Yeah, well, you know, three weeks ago, there was no point going there because it was too empty. Now it's too crowded. Now so too crowded. I, <laughs> I ended up uh, in the same situation. You got you St- got used staying to, home. You got used to it being nice and quiet and relaxed, and all of a sudden it's like a boomerang. It just shoots back, and uh, yeah, well, yeah. I, I liked it the way it was, but I assume uh, mo- for most people the change is uh, is a timely change. Yeah, it's. Uh, I, I was at a, a, a coffee shop yesterday called Aroma. Everyone listening in Israel knows about it, and uh, it was very clear that not to say anything negative about Aroma, but uh, it was very clear that the people working there had not seen. <laughs> Real live customers in a very long time. Uh, I think it took them about 20, 25 minutes to make a simple salad. Uh, <laughs> anyways, it's, it's good that things are coming back. It, it means that, uh, you know, at least we're going in the right direction. And we hope that, uh, we hope that it continues that way. Well, so speaking of things going back to normal, I mean, if, if there's one thing you can count on in Israel that's even more consistent than the weather or, or you know, the, the kind of conflicts that we have every year is it's elections right? i was gonna say traffic <laughs> traffic traffic and elections come out you know what during the covid i, I enjoyed not having too much traffic um and, and the traffic is coming back and i hate traffic if anything i hate traffic uh, we're thrilled to have here with us uh my colleague and uh, superstar analyst columnist editor 
uh, I don't know, you do like a thousand things, Shmuel. Shmuel Rosner. So Shmuel is a Tel Aviv-based commentator, columnist, editor, think tank fellow. He's a senior fellow at the Jewish People Policy Institute. He's the nonfiction editor for Israel's largest publishing house, Kineret Zmora Bitan Dvir. I think you need another name in there. Uh, it's not long enough. No, it's actually Kineret Zmora Dvir. Bitan is no longer part oh, of no the No, no more name. Bitan. Okay. Yeah, so you can shorten your right. introduction. That's, that we can shorten you the go back and start from... <laughs> <laughs> So Shmuel is also the senior political editor for Jewish Journal based out of L.A., writes the popular blog Rosner's Domain, as well as a weekly column for, uh, a monthly column for the New York Times? Well, a, a column a, for the New York a, Times. An occasional column for an the New York Times. An occasional column for the New York Times and for one of Israel's leading dailies, Ma'ariv. Uh, previously... That's weekly. That's weekly. So for the Hebrew speakers, readers out there, that's a weekly thing. Um, Shmuel was in the U.S. as the U.S. correspondent for Haaretz for uh, for a number of years. He's written a few books on American Judaism, on Israeli Judaism. His most recent one is Hashtag Israeli Judaism, Portrait of a Cultural Revolution, and most recently joined Khan News, which is Israel's TV Channel 11, as a political commentator and the founder and editor-in-chief of the data research website Hamadad, which we will talk about, which looks into reports on Israeli politics, society, identity, and culture. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. You know, I was, uh, we've been waiting for this for a while to have you on, but I think I was your first guest on, on your show. Right. And so. It was uh, a while ago. That was a while ago. Yeah. And you, you're doing More a great two thing. two years ago. You're doing a great thing on your show. We didn't even mention that in the bio, but you have your own podcast, um, which you do a weekly uh, interview series with uh, interesting authors and all sorts of people. Right. Um, so we're going back to elections. <laughs> elections. elections. Yeah. Fourth fourth time in two years. Feels so normal now. It feels normal, although, you know, uh, it's it's a tired campaign. You you could you could feel that people are tired of it. There's no uh there's no sense of excitement or, or enthusiasm among neither politicians nor the nor the people. So um yeah, well, hopefully this will be the last time for a while, although I cannot commit to such conclusion. It I, might not be the last one. I, I got to say, after the f- the first time we went to a second election, I was shocked. I was I was literally my jaw had dropped. I was watching the news. I was watching the vote, and I couldn't believe that we were going to a second election. And we're not going to a fourth, and we might go to a fifth because we're in a stalemate. I, I also sense that there's no energy, right? There, even among the like you said, even among the politicians, no, there is, there is no energy. It's you know c- campaigns campaigns are exhausting, and to have four campaigns in two years, um, that's really exhausting. And um, you know, I I my heart goes to the politician as much as I uh, am a cynic about politicians. You know, it, it's it's not a professionally speaking. It's just exhausting to have to go. Time and again, at the same, you know, the same people, the same issues. The, it goes on and on and on with no conclusion. Um, it's problematic. What can I say? Is, is there a way to kind of summarize for anybody that's listening in a country that doesn't know what the hell happened? Well, it's very simple. Uh, in Israel, we have a parliament to uh, control the parliament to have a ruling coalition. You need sixty-one seats in the parliament and no one gets it that's 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 the basis you know we have all kinds of parties and this will not sit with that and this leader will not agree to uh, be uh, to cooperate with uh, that leader and th- there are all these factions 
different in ideology, in, in, you know, different egos, different calculations, etc. And we end up not having 61 members willing to sit together for, I don't know, two, three, two years, three years, four years uh, of uh, stable coalition. It seems like, uh, you know, that's, that's true. And it, it seems like it's just such a thing that's so unprobable when they, you know, way back when we're designing our form of government that it would, you know, nobody thought, you know, this could, this is definitely going to happen someday. We should, you know, plan ahead. But now that it's happened, is there any, you know, discourse or, or discussion on, 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 on maybe putting in place some sort of a, a, a policy regulation or, or, or protocol or changing to make the system. sure that, that these sorts of things are more difficult to, well, to occur? Yeah, I understand the question, and my position on this is that all all systems have their flaws. And you know, uh, if if you look, you know, to the great democracy of America, and you think about what they've been through in the last uh, five years, you know, with the electoral college versus the majority vote, and with the different states, and and with the you know marginal differences between between the two parties. And the dysfunctional Congress. So, so you know, their system has flaws. The British system has flaws. Uh, ours, you know, we have our own flaws. I'm, I'm not sure that correcting, correcting course is going to bring us to a promised land. We'll just replace one set of problems with another. So, um, you know, whether we can tweak the system and make it somewhat better, that's possible. But there, there are always unintended consequences that that, right. that you don't always understand in, in advance. I'll, I'll give you an example. Okay, just a few years ago, um, legislators in Israel, mostly right-wing legislators, decided to uh, raise the electoral threshold. Right, Lieber, Lieberman pushed it, didn't exactly. he? Exactly. Yeah. To, to get into the Israeli Knesset, you need to get 3.25% of the vote. Otherwise, you don't get in. It used to be a lower percentage. So it, it, uh, it was raised from two to four seats, if I'm not mistaken. Right? Something like that, yeah. yeah. So, and the people who initiated this move, well, it was suspected that the people initiating these, this move uh, wanted it as a um, wall against growth of um, Arab parties. Uh, you know, the Arab parties were split and small, and they thought, or at least some of the supporters of, of this move thought, that, okay, we'll raise the threshold, we'll raise the bar, and then some of these Arab parties, which are always problematic in the Israeli political context, they will not cross the threshold and right. they'll stay out of the Knesset. The result was not what they expected. It was a unification of all Arab parties, and the largest ever number of Arab members of Knesset um, in in the 2015 and uh, and moving forward. Yeah, they became the third largest party. Exactly, overnight. exactly. So, so Speaking, yeah, first of all, I, I must say right? I, I see no problem with with having 15 or even more members of Knesset who are Arab in the Israeli parliament. But those who intended to limit the number of uh, Arab uh, MKs. Uh, you know, didn't didn't do the full calculation. Didn't foresee what's going to happen. They were looking at a certain situation, and didn't understand that by raising the bar, they are altering. 
the entire situation and, and making the Arab legislators to, to act in a different way. Interesting. You know, the, the first, um, I mean, you literally write about this daily, um, so, so you're probably the best person to speak about this, or one of the best people to speak about this. The first well, time I want to be the best, the best, the best. Well, we'll yeah, see, but we'll see by the we'll see by the, the end best. of this. <laughs> um, the first election that we went to, you know, there's different ways to characterize what they were about. Like, what are these elections about, right? You, sometimes it's, you know, uh, in the past we've had elections about uh, two state solution with the Palestinians, no two state solution. Um, you know, religion and state issues, etc. Um, or, or even just generally, broadly speaking, we'd say right versus left. Um, as we jumped into this election cycle, and this is the fourth election in this kind of failed election cycle, it was about Bibi, right? Bibi and his uh, in his corruption trials that he's finally on trial now. Um, but how else would you, was it just in for Bibi, against Bibi, or how would you characterize kind of the arc of the, what is these elections about as we go through these four elections? Well, for, first of all, I, I don't think corruption is a big part of the story. It's true that that people who oppose the prime minister or oppose Netanyahu tend to uh, um, raise the issue of corruption as if this was the the or one of the most important features. Uh, but it's basically for and against him for, for a whole variety mm-hmm. of reasons. And, and I think even without... Uh, corruption trial, we would be in the exact same place. Uh, that's not the key factor. The key factor is that we have the same prime minister with uh, similar policies and similar coalitions for a very long time. And Netanyahu has been in power since uh, 2009. Nine, nine, yeah. Yeah, it's a long time. It's, it's 12 years in power. He's been the most dominant politician in Israel since, since 1995 when he was first elected prime minister. So we are getting close to 30 years of his dominance in our political arena. And unbelievable. Yeah, it's unbelievable. It really and, is. And, and there, there is a growing share of the population, or at least a, a, a set share of the population who do not want to see him continue. And, you know, the, the, the other part of the same equation is that there are still many people who do want him to continue. And there's not enough, there's no overwhelming sense of urgency among enough Israelis to, uh, you know, to, to, to get to a conclusive outcome at any election. So, the, you know, what we see today that's different than the previous three rounds of election is the lack of one big party challenging Netanyahu. Uh, The elections in uh, 2019 and 2020 were all about blue and white, one big party unifying the anti-Netanyahu forces. And and they almost succeeded. They almost succeeded, and eventually some of them decided to to join in, to join uh, Mr. Netanyahu because they couldn't figure out a way to to answer. If If you can't beat him, join him. Right, so so they almost made it, but but it was not enough, and blue and white crumbled, and now what we have is basically uh, Likud, that's the largest party, and there's no no real competition for Likud when it comes to the number of seats it will get in the Knesset, uh, and the, then a number of mid-sized and smaller parties competing 
for um, you know a variety of of sentiments from no way we're going to sit with this guy to well we prefer not to have him no. but if there's no other choice we might still sit with him at the same coalition so whether Netanyahu gets enough seats to form his own coalition which will be a hardcore right-wing religious coalition yeah he has no choice I mean. he, he has no choice there, there are no alternatives for him um for the other side you know the other side is going to get more seats the problem with getting more seats is that the camp is still less coherent right so you have more seats but these are seats of parties who cannot comprehend how they can sit with one another you know on the one side you have the the radical uh, uh, the the joint list of uh, Arab you know communists right. Arabs etc and on the other hand you have the ultra rightist uh, uh, Yamina party can they sit together just to unseat Netanyahu it's very problematic okay can we go through the the parties real quick for those listeners who aren't uh, fully aware of and, and it's also I mean we should point out the There's a few core parties that kind of stick around from year to, from election to election, which I could say, I guess, is year to year, maybe a Freudian slip there. But, um, you know, we have Likud. You mentioned Likud. Um, and and the Arab list has been around for a few. Let, can we kind of go through the parties? Because it just changes right. all so, the time. So, so you have Likud, and Likud is, you know, is a party that was formed many years ago, and it's it, that's a real party. You know, it has real... Real people voting for it time and again. It has institutions. It has right, local exactly. branches. And, right? and, and tradition. It has a real tradition of a real party. It has primaries. One of the very few parties in Israel right. who still hold uh, you know, primaries to elect their, their list of candidates. And, and if we had to place them on a spectrum, and, and let's do this for all, if we had to place them on a spectrum, very roughly, of course, of kind of left to right, right to left, where would you place Likud on this spectrum? Well, I'd say it's probably center-right with uh, um, most members of the party or most uh, leaders of the party ten- tending more to the right, but the real leader of the party, Mr. Netanyahu, more to the center-right. So he's, he's a, a rightist centrist leading a right-wing party. I, I always find that amusing because when you hear the international discourse of people who are less familiar with Israel, <coughs> the... Netanyahu was always associated with very far right and he's he's thrown kind of in the right, same Victor Orban he's thrown in there with Orban and Bolsonaro and uh, and Putin and and yeah, Erdogan. that's not the case that's right. not th- those who are familiar with Netanyahu and with his uh, you know he has the leadership style of a, an ultra populist and right. an ultra rightist but but in in many ways when it comes to policy he is a very cautious centrist Uh, he doesn't do he doesn't do radical things he, neither on the front of war nor in diplomacy nor in his relations with the Supreme Court um, you know he tends to say things that could could be interpreted as radical but he's a very cautious right. leader and it's something I always like throwing at uh, groups I talk to of foreigners and you work with a lot of foreign groups too and I'm assuming you speak to them also it's just it, it shocks them every time it's like actually you know he, he speaks like a populist but like uh, you said uh, he's there's very there, cautious and part of that also happens to be that the groups of foreigners 
you know, when when speaking about left and right, that means something different in Israel than it does, right. and, and for we'll example, get into to that. the American context. Right, and we'll get into that in a second because this uh, you, is a, you, you wanted to go through the yeah, list of Okay, of so we, we so, have Likud. Okay, so Likud is the largest. Yesh Atid, that's the second largest party. Yesh Atid is uh, headed by uh, Yair Lapid. Yeah. And, you know, it's it's a younger party, but it begins to have a tradition. It's been around for, yeah. a, for a decade or so. It's polling consistently. Right. And, and it's, you know, it's a party of uh, upper middle class um, um, people who mostly, you know, urban people, mostly from the center of Israel, Tel Aviv, Ranana. Um, that, that's the party. Fairly secular, but uh, staunchly, you know, Zionist and with some uh, respect for for Jewish tradition. So, so it's a very it's a real mainstream party for mostly secular upper middle class Israelis. Um, then you have, um, you know, the third largest is the Joint List: Arabs, communists, right. uh, some nationalists. Um, it's an Arab party. Mostly, most of its uh, voters are Arab voters. And this is really, uh, we say joint list. For those who aren't familiar, this is really all of the smaller Arab parties who have well, come together. Well, not all of them. Uh, oh, in, that, right. th- this time, one of them, one of them decided to 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 quit. But but it's true. It's most of the uh, smaller Arab parties joining together to form uh, a larger party for the benefit of right. of their constituency. Uh, we should say that uh, this party never joined an Israeli coalition. Uh, it doesn't much see itself as part of the regular day-to-day uh, political game in Israel. And in many ways, that's that's a reason for consternation and some debate within Arab-Israeli society. You know, Arabs in Israel begin to feel that they'll be better served by leaders uh, willing to play a part in Israel's uh, political arena. Uh, the current party doesn't do that in, in, in a significant way. And some, some Arab uh, voters would like to see a new leadership emerging that is more willing to cooperate with Jewish parties, Zionist parties, etc., and, and play a part in Israel's political game. Let's go quickly through the other sure. parties. So, uh, so you have Tikva Chadasha. That's a party of mostly former Likud members. So this is a new party. This is a party that literally didn't exist exactly. last election. A right-wing party similar to Likud in ideology, except for one thing. They don't want Benjamin Netanyahu as prime minister. They want to be like the old Likud, the old Likud the more, right. yeah, the old, the more dignified, less uh, you know, State, less populist, right. le- exactly Likud. So that's Tikva Chadasha, the and, new hope. And I'll throw in there, and something that that I often point out is a lot of people on the right feel that, and this is my own commentary on this, but I, you might share it. Netanyahu and some of his kind of the, the those who follow him as a personality cult have strayed away from core Likud, classic right-wing values, and are serving Netanyahu. And this is their critique on him, uh, or my analysis of their critique on him. And, and and they feel like they're maybe re-establishing what the Likud should have been. Right, right. right. Well, in their view, that's what in they're their doing. View, yes. And, you know, one of the, the most uh, um, 
notable members that joined Gidon Saar in his quest to unseat Likud, his own party, his own former party, is uh, um, former minister uh, Benny Begin, the son the of son the of, legendary yeah. prime minister of Likud, the first prime minister of the Likud party, Menachem Begin, the, the, you know, the person who started Likud and led it for many years through the political desert mm. and then became prime minister. So his son no longer supports Likud. He supports uh, New Hope, Tikva Chadasha right. by Gidon Saar, by which to, again, to... to re-emphasize the claim that this is the true Likud. This is, this is a party that represents the old true um, meaning of, of what, what it's like to be the Likud party. Uh, then you have Yamina. Yamina is a is, um, reincarnation of the old Mafdal, the uh, religious Zionist party, right. with some uh, non-religious uh, right-wing uh, members Uh, maybe members of, uh, again, those who, who know uh, Israeli political history, maybe members of uh, uh, Tzomet or of Hatchia. Um, there is always a hardcore right-wing component that is not religious in Israel, and those members also joined Kadima. Kadima is led by Naftali. Yamina, Yamina. Yamina I'm yeah. sorry. Yamina is led by... Uh, Kadima, you took me back yeah, to uh, Kadima 2009. Is yeah, Kadima Yamina is led by Naftali Bennett, a former defense minister. And, uh, he's an interesting figure on the Israeli scene. He's young, he's charismatic, he's very ambitious. Yeah. He, um, um, you know, he, he uh, served in an elite combat unit in the IDF. He became um, a high-tech uh, entrepreneur, Alina, yeah. yes, and then, and then a politician. So he, he's an interesting figure. He clearly wants to be prime minister. And, you know, in this test uh, that we always apply, who wants to be prime minister the most? Because those who get it are usually those who want it the most. Uh, I suspect that Naftali Bennett probably wants it more than other politicians. I agree with that. He's, yeah. he's, he's really, he really wants to be prime he minister. Seems, he seems to be, or at least the voice that I hear when he speaks, he seems to be the, one of the only candidates right now that doesn't seem tired. That's true. That's true. He's, an, he's very energetic. Many of his followers are young people. Uh, he comes up with, you know, uh, every now and then he comes up with new ideas or new plans for, you know, bettering Israel in that regard or another. He was uh, one of the early leaders to talk constantly about the pandemic and its, uh, and its damages and to demand that right. the government ditch everything else to the side, you know, put everything else to the side and focus on the pandemic and its consequences. So, yes, he's, he's a charismatic leader. He, he seems in many ways also to have, in that particular point, we're raising the flag about the pandemic and putting everything to the side. He seems to almost have succeeded in, 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 in the minds of many people, even redefining the direction of his party in terms of its policy initiatives where, where maybe many people that wouldn't necessarily vote for a, a party That is, like you were saying, you know, the Mafdal, uh, uh, you know, a very right-wing party, party. The right? settler I mean, party. supposed to be the settler party. Uh, you know, they see it now, you know, maybe as a rational choice, uh, even, uh, when looking at the political map. Is, is that possible, or, or are people naive to think that he's... Look, it, it's possible, but we see, we see that in the polls. He, you know, he polls between, I don't know, 11 and 12 seats. Um, that's nice, but it's not a lot. Uh, and and what Bennett is trying to do, he's he's walking a very fine line between 
being staunchly right wing um because if 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 there is uh, a suspicion that he's not right wing enough not committed enough to the ideas of the right then many people are going to abandon him he refuses to say whether he'll form a coalition with Netanyahu or not so he's the one party in between the two main blocks you know the the for Netanyahu camp and the anti Netanyahu camp he wants to be kingmaker he can go both ways um and again it's a it's a fine line you know people might decide at the last minute that you know they're not certain enough about him and abandon him to go back to Likud or to go even further to the right with a smaller party of Atsionuta Datit uh, the the ultra right religious party um but they might stick with him and then he could become kingmaker and even in some bizarre way he can even become prime minister you know with 10 or 12 seats it's that, possible that would be that would be nuts because because <laughs> of our political system because he can go to both camps and tell them okay i'm willing to join you on one this one condition i'm prime minister and then you know likud will face a very tough choice whether they stay in the opposition with the 30 seats or they let bennett with his 10 or 12 seats lead them into a joint coalition that's a it's a very tough choice it seems like it's a, it's technically possible but very very not probable no, i think he's got the he, he might want to do it he's got in, the, in israeli got politics never say never <laughs> it never happened before um but it could four it, elections. it could happen it could happen so i notice you're going not in order of left to right but in order of large to small Well, I was trying to do that, but then I, you yeah. know, I mentioned that Sionuta Datit already, the ultra-right-wing so, so yeah, so religious po- uh, party. Right, so they split uh, last ele- or a couple right, elections ago. Right. So the, the They split, then they merged back, then they, then split, they split again. again yeah. um, basically, what you see here is the, the intra-battle of two different factions of religious Zionism in Israel. There is the religious Zionism that tends to be more not centrist but more mainstream or mainstream more moderate in its religious it, approach maybe exactly and 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 more more has a, a um more tendency to become part of the large larger israeli society to lead israeli society to be a part of it and that's bennett that's bennett and then there is the part of it that is more like the ultra orthodox more You know secluded more extreme or radical or staunch on religious is- issues and on political issues and on political issues in, in, in to some to some extent so so these are people who have a smaller party but it's there and currently in most cases it it, it crosses the threshold so we might see it with four or five seats in In the next Knesset. And just so people understand, we have 120 seats, and, and to pass the threshold, you need minimum four seats. So what happens if some if a party doesn't get well, the four seats? Well, what you need is 3.25%, percent, yes. which in most cases is going to be translated to four seats. It's possible, theoretically, to get in with three seats. Mm. Very rare, but not impossible. And then, like we said, I guess the, the don't count out the impossible in, right. in Israeli politics. Right. Um, but but they're on the threshold, you're saying? 
they are not far from the threshold. Yes. And I think what's, what's interesting, maybe not electorally, but what's interesting is who the, um, in this, in the, for those who understand Hebrew, we call them the Chardalim, which is kind of a play on words, right? Yeah, Chardi Dati. Chardi Leumi Dati. Chardi Leumi, yeah. Chardi Leumi, national Haredis, like uh, Zionist ultra-Orthodox. Right. The ultra-Orthodox parties, Shas and United Torah Judaism, right. we should mention both. Shas is the Sephardic ultra-Orthodox party. Uh, United Torah Judaism is the Ashkenazic uh, ultra-Orthodox party. These parties are not self-defined as Zionist. You know, in many ways they are. Um, if you look at the way they act and the initiatives they support... Especially Shas. Especially Shas and the policies they support, I think, or I suspect that many of their constituents would consider themselves as Zionists. But these, you know, the ultra-Orthodox theology is not a Zionist theology. Um, the Haredi Lumi, the ultra-Orthodox Zionist, is, you know, they are as strict as the ultra-Orthodox, but they do have Zionist theology to go with their Haredi approach to religiosity. Right, so so if you're trying to keep track here, we have four flavors of religious parties for you to choose from, and that's not even including the Islamist party, if you want to throw that in. Um, okay, so we, we went through the main uh, parties on the right. And yeah, now we need to go back to the left. And, and something interesting that, even though maybe numerically it's it's minor, but um, the the... Zionist ultra-religious party that you mentioned joined forces with someone who until recently you could say was kind of uh, maybe a taboo subject or a taboo figure in Israeli politics and that's Itamar Ben-Gvir. Well, he's a taboo until he's not. You know, one, once in a while... Until he's useful. The, exactly, exactly. The, the, taboo, the taboo is there until someone really needs him because he, he has a... I don't know, 50,000 followers and it's becoming crucial to have them support a certain party, then you break the taboo and then you go back to the taboo a year or two years later. So I, I, would not, I don't think it's a real taboo. In Israel, we had such extremists in, in the, within the Knesset a number of times. Um, you know, people might like or dislike it, might see it as... Uh, um, intolerable or okay but that's the way it is why is he considered a pariah why because he's you know there is a suspicion he's he's a follower of former rabbi Meir Kahana uh, an extreme right winger yeah, as in the Israeli sphere as extreme as it gets you could say exactly and you know there is the question do they really support a state in which there's equal opportunity and equal rights for all citizens including Arabs do they really want to um, you know transport the Arabs to the other side of the Jordan River uh, tempting them to leave the greater land of Israel. This is a party that toys with extreme radical ideas. Uh, they tend to be careful not to say exactly what they want, but you know, when you look at, at the leaders and at the people supporting these leaders, um, it's, it's, there is a suspicion, it's a, it's a valid suspicion. 
Does it change something fundamentally in Israeli politics if, if he gets into the Knesset? No, you don't I think don't so? think so. No, we, we had such members in the past. You know, they're, they're very loud. They tend to make, you know, uh, speeches that, you know, raise hell in the Knesset. And, you know, there's a lot of anger go, yeah. go to, to go around and, you know, great sound bites. But other than that, their impact on actual policies is marginal. Do they have an impact on, and this is a lot harder to measure, but do they have an impact on the zeitgeist, on kind of, you know, where society uh, feels, you know, because both Ben Gvir and, and his now partner, Smotrich, are very charismatic people. They're very fantastic speakers. Uh, I think they're among the most charismatic politicians in Israeli politics, if you, you know, detach from, from their politics for a second. So can they influence the public opinion on these issues? Look, again, it's a party with four or five seats. Um, they have followers. Their followers tend to be very conservative, highly conservative, and their views on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict or on security or on religiosity uh, would seem extreme to most of our listeners. Um, having said that, you know, there is such faction of the population and they have the right to, her, sure. to have their voice heard. And again, their, their impact on policy is, is not dramatic. So we, we covered the entire right-wing spectrum. And um, what's going on with the left, the left in Israel? We touched on Yeshatid, which is borderline left. Right. Yeshatid is a centrist party. <laughs> we'll, we'll go to the left. But before we go to the left, I, I, I should mention, and I, and I think it's important for listeners to know, that left and right in Israel are not similar in numbers. It's not as if we have a country divided by you know, 50% right and 50% left. It's not like the U.S. in that, in that stance. No, not, not at all. Uh, Israel is a right, center-right country, uh, especially when, it, uh, when we are talking about the majority Jewish population. You know, the, the Arab party is, is uh, you know, we consider it to be left, but it's not, it's not left in the exact same way. Right, they're playing a different game. Exactly. If we are looking at the Jewish population in Israel, uh, it's more than 60% right and center-right. And then you have about 25% centrists, and only about 20% of the Jewish population are center-left or left. The left itself is really 5%, 5 6% of the Jewish population. So you should know, and our listeners should understand, that right and left are not... You know, it's an elephant and a mosquito. <laughs> these these are not two uh, two uh, elephants fighting each other. Um, now the left, uh, we have the Labour Party, and, and the, I mean the Labour Party used to be right Ben Gurion and and its right. kind of iterations. It used, it, it used to be the major party in Israel. Then it became one of the two major parties in Israel, uh, Labour versus Likud. Uh, then it uh, declined. Um, to the extent that about a year ago we thought it, it was over for the Labour Party. We thought the Labour Party is a thing of the past and that the party is doomed to extinct, extinction. Um, I mean, I, th I think I even recall you saying uh, might as well bury it and, and sit Shiva for the Labour Party or not sit Shiva, depending on right. what your politics and, and, are. And then, and then it was resurrected 
by a fairly young um, female leader, Merav Mikhaeli. The, the only one on the national scene right now. Exactly. Um, she's charismatic. She's a, you know, she's a good speaker. She has some radical thoughts which she made in the past, some of which are highly controversial. Like what? Like, um, you know, a slight opposition to the traditional uh, uh, family, um, uh, slight opposition to people having uh, many children, which in Israel is a common thing, not right. just for religious people, but also for non-religious people. Um, so she's, you know, she has strong views and she expresses those views and she managed to somehow attract people, attract voters and make the Labour Party a living thing again. Now, it's not going to be a major party in the Israeli political sphere. It is still a small party and it's not out of the danger zone. It could still... Um, it could still fall below the threshold uh, at the end of the day. But for now, it seems more secure than its sister party, Meretz. We'll talk about right. Meretz in a second. More secure than its sister party, and it's the main party that represents the, you know, the, the hardcore left wing of the Israeli public. Um, so that's the Labour Party. And then you have merits. Merits used to be more to the left than Labour Party, but now they really compete for the same people. Yeah, it's really hard to tell the difference between them these they're, days. You know, they're trying, they're trying to parse it in such a way that will give you uh, uh, an impression of, of differences or an illusion of differences. There are no differences between these two parties. The leaders are very similar in nature. The ideology is very similar. And what I know from polls is, is that the voters are very... These are the same voters. Right. Um, you know, uh, um, a few days ago on, a, on a, a TV show, I proposed to the leaders of the two parties to just split the votes by saying that all people from Aleph to Lamed <laughs> vote for one party and people with a, with a last name from Lamed to Taf uh, would go for the other party and then both parties will... have just enough votes to, to go cross, over yeah. the threshold and both of them well, will get in. Why don't they merge? Well, they, they didn't merge before, before election, before it was, uh, when it was still possible, mostly because of ego. Mostly because, um, you know, the leaders, each leader wanted to be the leader of the merged party. Each party thought that it has the right to be the more dominant leader member of such a merger. Uh, there were mergers in the recent past that didn't go very well for both parties. So, so they decided not to merge. I think that in retrospect, this was clearly a mistake. I agree. Because, because there is a fairly good chance that one of them will not cross the threshold. And currently... Uh, it seems as if merits is more in danger than labor party now one more thing we should say is that merits used to get votes not just from Jewish left wingers but also a seat or two from Arab voters these voters are mostly gone in this cycle because they changed their minds or because of two things yeah. 
One, because, well, three things. One, because enthusiasm among Arab voters is currently low. Uh, it seems as if many Arabs aren't going to even bother. This time, you know, they, they did bother last time. There was a record number of right. Arab, Arab uh, Israelis voting in the last election, and it got them nothing. So why bother? That's, even, that's, even though Meretz made a point of, of, of placing an Israeli Arab high up on their list? Right. Now, second reason is, there, is that there is a, compet- a real competition within the Arab population between two parties, the joint list, which we already mentioned, mm-hmm. and Ra'am. Ra'am is an Islamist party, uh, but it's changing the whole conversation in the Arab street because for the first time you see a party willing to do business not just with the Israeli left but also with the Israeli right. This is Mansour Abbas, right? Mansour Abbas, uh, a leader uh, of, of Arab Israelis, uh, very religious, but he says, I, I don't care about the views of My partners, all I care about is my constituency. And if Benjamin Netanyahu, a Likud-led coalition, a right-wing Likud-led coalition, is willing to give me what I need, which is, you know, more policing to prevent violence in Arab streets, more support for, uh, you know, unemployed people in in Arab towns and villages, more uh, support for uh, commercial initiatives in, you know... Uh, better education for Arab kids, etc. If they are willing to give me what I need for my constituency, you know, I'm willing to support them. I'm willing to trade my vote for the financial and material support that the coalition can give me. This is <coughs> this is fascinating because um, you you mentioned this earlier. Until now, the Arab parties have not been willing to sit with any of the other parties. Like you said, they've kind of been out of the game. And if I'm reading you correctly here, and I kind of see this happening also in the field, um, we could see the Islamist party, and for those who are not aware, we have an Islamist party in Israeli politics, um, kind of doing what the Israeli, what the Jewish ultra-Orthodox parties are doing, and that's saying we'll sit with whoever gives us our sectoral needs. That's the model. Yeah. Ram is the Arab version of Shas. And that's fascinating. And that's that's what it is. You know, it it, yeah. it represents uh, highly traditional, uh, low income people, and it is fighting for their material, you know, well being. Yeah, it, it seems in many ways like it's a very pragmatic thing for them to do, and it's a, it's also very um, lacking in ego. He's willing to go and, and do something which may not be considered popular in order to serve his constituents. He might feel like no. I think I, I think he he believes this to the, to be the popular thing. I I think that he identified that the Arab street is changing and that it's time for someone to emerge and you know shamelessly present such option right. to Arab voters. I, I want to kind of take this somewhere else. It, it, it seems like what he's doing is something that is, you know, I, I almost wish that like my my leaders, the leaders that represent my views would do it more, which is to say, we live, you know, I'm looking down at the sheet of paper. It's a huge list of different parties. We're, we're not even done yet. We're not even done. <laughs> 
Well, there are more than 30, you know, so we are not we're, going we're not to go through all of them. Yeah. Yeah. But there's one more that I do want to touch on. We have so yeah. many political parties in this country, and they all want a piece of the pie, and there's a limited number of actual issues that matter to the average voter. And who the average voter is, we can talk about in debate probably until the end of time. But the fact of the matter is, is that you have a situation, at least as far as, as I can tell, and I've, lived, I've been living here for 18 years, where the prime minister... And, and we'll go through this in a second. You know, he, he, his natural partners, what are referred to as the Shutafima Tiv'im, Shulbibi, the natural partners of the Likud, are not necessarily parties which share, let's call it, if taken to the end goal of what their maximal policy agenda would be, they don't share much in common in terms of what they want Israel to be. But they find that they have an ability to sit in the same room together and to vote together, and they're willing over the course of the past. 12 years to be in line on certain things. So you have non-Zionist religious parties that are very comfortable voting together with the Likud. You have, you know, it depends on the day, uh, centrist parties that have been partnered with the Likud. You have uh, the concept maybe even sometimes of left parties, uh, leftist parties uh, that that may have, the Avodah, there was talk maybe uh, would, would partner with the Likud, and they did. Uh, and in the past they In did. the past they did. Uh, the, the question is this. I'm the prime minister now, let's say. I'm not, not me, oh, Benny. Congratulations. That would, be, that would be horrible if I was prime minister. I'm not, I'm not that you know kind that of a guy. The average but term for prime minister today is about half a year. So just yeah, enjoy it. Enjoy it while it lasts. It lasts. Uh, <laughs> why, why does the... It seems that the prime minister here, and this is not like Israel, I'm going to say something that we're so different from any other country. It seems like... The prime minister is very chiefly uh, uh, interested in remaining the prime minister and the, the party to remain in power, and thus he will partner with the people who have classically been his, his partners. But I'm wondering whether, if we're talking about what's actually better for the, for the state of Israel, for the continuity and the, and the strength of, the, of, the, of, of, of this project, the Zionist project, for interests to be what actually, uh, not interests in terms of personal interests, but in terms of policy interests to be what actually determines what would be best and would we be better off if Bibi's natural partners were other centrist parties as opposed to... So you're saying stability versus actual policies. Right. Would it be better for, the, for stagnation? Would it be better for whom? For Bibi. For the Likud, for the, for the party agenda. Well, Bibi is doing... You know, I tend not to complain about politicians who want to stay in power because that's, that's the profession. When you are a politician, that this is what you do. You want to implement policies, and in order to implement policies, you need to be in you power. power yeah. That's that's a condition, a precondition for for pursuing your policies. So, correct, correct. But so the also fact that Netanyahu is is doing, you know, he's looking for the partners that will support him and will give him the 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 uh, leeway to do what he wants policy wise. You know, but that's, that's the question. That's Do the, they give him the leeway? You mentioned earlier that Bibi keeps he, the status quo. It, it doesn't. It, he doesn't seem to well, actually. Well, let, me, let me phrase it he, another they way. They give him. They give him more leeway than all other parties because most other parties are committed to get rid of him. So if you're if if all centrist parties would commit themselves to keep Bibi in power for the next ten years, and then join him, he might he might take the deal. But he knows that all the other parties will only get into his coalition in order to unseat him, ultimately. And the parties that he that he um, 
partners with, Shas and and uh, um, United Torah Judaism, etc. These parties, they they're they're not after his seat. They they're their leaders, not wish to become prime minister. So it's you know politically speaking, that's a wise move for him. Do I do I like as a voter? Do I like it? Not particularly. Is it short sighted in terms of the actual? Challenges well, that are well, facing I think, I think Israel. Wait, 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 hold on. Hold on. Yeah. If, Is it short-sighted? If if he thinks, if he thinks, I'll I'll give you um, you know his short version of 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 this of of the argument. Okay, the most existential problem for Israel for Israel today is Iran. Point number one. Point number two. There's only one person in Israel who truly understands the nature of the threat and what needs to be done to deal with this threat. And that's me, Prime Minister Netanyahu. Point number three, in order to deal with this threat, I must be in power. Then all else is is very clear. You know, you do what you have to do is to stay in power because you are the only person who can deal with the number one existential threat for Israel, and that's what I do and as Netanyahu. Do you think if he said... Uh, you know, again, we're playing Netanyahu here. We're all prime ministers for half a year now. Um, if if he said the number one threat to Israel is the, I don't know, involvement or lack of involvement of ultra-Orthodox Haredi society in Israeli politics, and therefore could he do the same thing and say we must consistently have centrist parties in order to deal with that? I mean, you're, you're saying he picks an issue and then he puts together the coalition to deal with his issue. And so he's just looking for stability and what you're saying, if I'm understanding correctly, is why doesn't he look at the issues that 80% of Israeli society agrees on, but as we'll say, I mean, it's just not going to keep him in power. And so this is kind of the, the constant tension that Israeli politics, and specifically Netanyahu, have to live in. Look, I, I tend to think that most politicians, all they want is power. That's what they want, first and foremost. They chose the profession. And, and again, I, I have no complaints. You know, that's that's sure. that's why there are politicians. Now, did Netanyahu, does Netanyahu truly believe that Iran is the number one issue and hence he must stay in power? Or is it the opposite? I must stay in power and hence I will declare Iran to be the number one issue? Yeah, the chicken or the egg here. It's, right? it's a very complicated mechanism that, that I cannot resolve. But, but that's the way he thinks and that's the way many of his voters think. And their partnership with the ultra-Orthodox parties is very convenient for them. I, I want to move on here. Um, we don't even, I mean, for those who follow, there's also one last party that we didn't mention. Blue and White. And that's Blue and White, who yeah. was had more votes than Likud in its fuller sense when it partnered with uh, Lapid just two election cycles ago. And now they, they might not cross the threshold. Let's talk about them very quickly, and then let's move on to a bigger question. Well, Blue and White was a very successful party for a year. It was established as a new enterprise and almost made it. Almost, you know, became the largest party in Israel and was very close to unseat Prime Minister Netanyahu. And then some of its members were tempted to join into Netanyahu's coalition. Including its leader. Including the leader, Benny Gantz. And that was the end of it. And Netanyahu managed to destroy his most threatening competitor by just luring it into his own coalition, then 
toying with it for a while, then throwing it out or not out. There's, the yeah, they're still the part of the coalition, good. but basically they're they're paying the price for joining the coalition. And Netanyahu, you know, again, is alone at the top. There's no one to compete with him, at least not when it comes to the number of seats. There's no one party competing with him. Uh, again, blue and white, it's, it's, a, it's a mystery. They're very close to the threshold, uh, doing now slightly better than they did a month or two ago. Who's, who's still voting for them? People. No, obviously. Yeah, there, are people, there are people who believe... Look, Some guys in Petah Tikva. No, <laughs> blue and white, look, they, they have, they have a, a somewhat appealing message to people who want to see Israel as a mainstream, calm, um, you know, non-controversial type of political entity. You know, it's very mamlakhti. It's very, you know, we represent all Israelis. We represent the people who can agree on 90% of all things. We are not too liberal and not too conservative. We are not too right-wing nor too left-wing. We support the IDF but we do not support total occupation of all territories around us. It's a very mainstream message. And many of the things that they say are things that most Israelis can basically agree with. Right. I want to ask you a question that I think of often, which is what you just said is people vote for him or people vote for that party, I should say, based on what their policies might be and how they talk about what their agenda should be or, or, or would be. I come into a, a lot of people, a lot of voters, uh, and it doesn't make a difference if they're Likud voters or if they're labor voters or if they're Beleza, it doesn't matter. They seem to be voting for the personality. They seem to be voting for the person. They might not even be aware what the policy initiative, what the policy agenda is. And I'll talk about, I talk about it all the time. I'll talk about my, uh, my in-laws, okay? My in-laws are very classic Likud voters. Be, they will be, you know, they will be vote cautious for, when you speak about your in-laws. It's okay. They don't listen to the show. They don't listen to the show. <laughs> they don't listen to the show. <laughs> That's great. Um, <laughs> they, uh, they will vote for BB. You know, to use a Trump metaphor, uh, or Trump saying, BB could walk into uh, Evan Kivuol, he could shoot somebody in the face, they'll keep voting for him. Okay? Uh, if I ask them, what does what is the Likud's position on, you know, Market privatization, I don't know. It doesn't matter. I vote for BB. BB is strong. Um, you know, and, and I I'd imagine that that's the same in a lot of other cases. That's true. Where are we in Israel now in terms of, you know, do voters even vote for the agenda of a party anymore? Or are we just voting for a personality? Well, or, it's a, or a brand, you know, it's it's a, a mixed picture. You you cannot you cannot differentiate the the, the policies from the personalities. It's true that like the rest of the world, Israel today is more a country in which personality cult is, is dominant and ideas and ideologies and, and you know, political platforms basically disappeared from our political arena. Most parties don't even have, don't even bother to write platforms because it, it doesn't... Because nobody reads them. Yeah, it doesn't matter. <laughs> uh, 
You, you and me. And, and <laughs> yet, and, and yet, and yet, you know, people do know that when they vote for merits, they vote for this ideology, yeah. and when they vote for uh, Smotrich and Azionuta Daitit, they vote for a different ideology. It's not as if ideology is not at all part of the equation. That's on the polls, but like, uh, let's come center. I mean, let's be yeah, perfectly well, honest. In, could in could Yair Lapid, Benny Gantz, who did come together, Gidon Tsar and Netanyahu. And Bennett, yeah, they can all sit together and the ideological differences between them are, are minor. Are minor. Maybe yeah. Bennett, you could say he's against the two-state solution and all there, the other ones there are... There is an Israeli mainstream that encompasses most of Israel's Jewish society and these people agree on most things. And this is, by the way, this is kind of the, the outcome and thesis of your latest book. Exactly. Israeli, hashtag Israeli exactly. Which Which dealt more with uh, the cultural aspect of it, cultural, religious aspect of it, but it's the same message. Most of us agree on most things. And, you know, we tend, we tend to um, invest a lot of time in a conversation about the, the polls, about the extreme views, right. about the debates, because a debate makes a good story and an agreement you know, is just boring. We all agree. <laughs> but if you ask me, what are the things on which Lapid, Netanyahu, Bennett, Saar, Gantz disagree on? Very few things. Very few things. And, and, and they do agree on most of the important things. It's not just few. It's few and marginal. On most of the important things, they agree. Yeah, and, and, and we'll just give a plug to your book here, um, which is available in English. Right? On Amazon. It's available in Hebrew. Um, and, and you just want to give us the name in Hebrew and the name in English? For well, Yadut Israelit, Diokan Shel Ma'apechat Arbutit, Israeli Judaism, Portrait of a Cultural Revolution. And, and we'll put those up on the show notes with links uh, for people who want to purchase the book. Fantastic. Whether in English or Hebrew. It, it's a really nice read. Um, it, it kind of encapsulates using data and not just, you know... Yeah, I partnered with uh, my good friend and colleague, Professor Camille Fuchs, who's a mathematician, a statistician from Tel Aviv University, and we conducted a number of polls and statistical analysis of Israeli society. And based on, on the data, we wrote a narrative. Yeah. Uh, so so you, can, you can better understand Israeli Jewish society by reading this narrative, but these these aren't just our thoughts on Israeli society. These are yeah. thoughts based on... So for the first time somebody used hard data to do it, and uh, I took some of that data and, and, and wrote a very specific book about a very specific part of Israeli society. I just read it. I, read, I wrote no book. Oh, you should write one. You should pick a different data set. <laughs> write write a book about your in-laws <laughs> and what they think. And then have them not read it. On the condition they don't read it. And have them not read it. It'll have exactly. to be in English. But, uh, okay, so we'll, we'll put those on the show notes. Um, but but like you said, the majority of Israeli voters, the Jewish Israeli voters, we should say, right. are really somewhere in the middle. So that kind of leads us to, to the next kind of big question here is, you know, when we talk about right and left in Israel, Okay, and, and you know, a lot of times, and most of our listeners are in the U.S., but but like we said, we have we have now listeners in ninety nine countries around the world, including one listener in the Solomon Islands. Hello, Solomon Island listener. Um, what are we talking about when we talk about right and left in the Israeli context? Well, for, it's a very complicated question to answer. Uh, it used that, to be that's why we invited you to the show. Yeah, it used to be about socialism versus uh, you know 
Capitalism. Capital, not even capitalism versus a private initiative. Mm. Then it became more about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Nowadays, I'm not sure it even exists. It's, yeah. it's, it's more about, you know, everybody who's for Netanyahu is called right-wing, but even that is no longer true in this election. So what's right and left in Israel? It's very complicated. I'll tell you what it's not. And, you know, especially for American listeners, you know, this... Such example is always uh, enlightening. It's not about um, um, health insurance, okay? Because that's a non-issue here. The big debate in America about, you know, private insurance versus, uh, you know, the state taking over, etc., and having nationalized uh, health care, nationalized health care in Israel is something that is not under any debate, right and left all agree that it's a good idea to have a nationalized health care. And we have it, and it's great. And it works. And it works, as, as we see now during the days of the pandemic. So, so it's not about many of the things that people talk about in other countries. It's a unique Israeli division of people. Again, if, if you think about it in a very specific way, uh, you could say it is still about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, not about the way we can resolve it now, because most Israelis don't think we can resolve it now, but rather about the ideal of what is the end goal or what is the end game for this conflict. It is also in some way, and this is something, you know, this... You know, I, I take here something that was said many years ago by uh, an American advisor to Netanyahu. It's Jewish Israel versus Israeli Israel. Yeah. The more Jewish camp, the more traditional camp is on the right. The more universalistic camp, um, you know, Israeli, civic Israeli is more is more on the left. This captures something. It's not the whole... It's not the whole picture, it's not the whole story, but it captures some, there is some truth to it, that the more you go from left to right, the more people become, I'd say, tribal. Yeah, I think that's a good way to describe it. Tribal versus um, universalist in, in outlook, and that tribal specifically is a very Jewish tribalism. Right. That's the tribe we have here. Right. I, I like to explain it as... Um, you know, kind of on the spectrum, you know, we like to call ourselves a Jewish and democratic state, which often seems like an oxymoron, but I think that's kind of the balance of where modern Israel sits. And and on that, you say, are you in favor of more Jewish? It's part of our law. Or more we democratic? We have a law saying now that we, we are, no, um, from uh, 30 years ago. From 30 years ago. Yeah, we have a law saying that Israel is a Jewish and democratic state. And that's the, you know, I think it's a problematic it's a problematic uh, um, term, but it captures something, and it's a term that that you know people believe in. Now you you can no longer um, you can no longer say okay let's let's get rid of this term because it's not a good term. That's the term that people now see as the core essence of Israel, a Jewish and democratic state. So we'll stick with it. So sometimes though we have conflicts about. You know, when those collide. I right? prefer to call them tensions. Mm. Tensions, that's fine. 
And, and you know, one of those is uh, the conversion issue that just came up, um, even though most people understand the conversion issue as an actual debate about who gets to decide who's Jewish, and they don't understand that the court just simply had to make a basically a constitutional decision. So let's put the technical aspect aside, but that's one of these issues, right? When you have a state that says Jews can make Aliyah, can become citizens instantly wherever they live, okay, who gets to decide who's a Jew, right? And so you have these tensions, or when we talk about marriage laws, or when we talk about public transportation on Shabbat, or, or kashrut, uh, kosher laws in public institutions, these are some of these tensions we talk about, and then you see some people kind of veer more towards the Jewish side of the decision or the equation, and some people veer more toward the democratic or universalist side of, of the equation. Right, although on, this, on these issues, many of the problems that we have are truly not about ideology, they're about power. It's about certain factions wanting to keep power within their own hands. So if you, if you have the power to give kosher certificates, this means, you know, an apparatus of people who... Jobs. Jobs and, yeah. and benefits that you get. So, so I'm not sure this is really about kashrut. It's about, you know, having, having the state support certain number of jobs that you can keep to yourself. There, there was um, an issue that you brought up, I think, in a New York Times column that I kind of borrowed, if that's okay. Um, and, and that's framing it around the control, and this connects to this, the control and dominance of the ultra-Orthodox parties in the national system and that Lieberman was kind of trying to make a play at one point to be you know, the one who unseats them from power. And that doesn't seem to be an issue as much these days. Right, because... because Again, this is not just in Israel. In every country, you, you have to differentiate between the views of people and how strongly they feel about them. And you, if they're you, willing to vote on those Exactly. Yeah. Not just to, to vote or to, to go to demonstrations. or to, You know, we, we had this issue with the Western Wall. Right, which, okay? which we, we wrote about. Yeah, which we wrote about. So in the Western Wall, you have a vast majority of Jewish Israelis supporting a compromise at the Western Wall and giving a third platform to progressive Jews to pray near the wall. Men and women together. Exactly. Yeah. So so why, why didn't the government follow through? The answer is that having 70% support, which is theoretical support in polls, is not like having 100,000 people willing to go to the Western Wall and yeah, sit and there right. and, and make sure you know, they get their way. And, and I think one of the lines we wrote was, that, you know, when you have 100,000 Orthodox and ultra-Orthodox Jews willing to even violently protest versus 1,000, 2,000 Reform and secular Jews willing to protest for the other position, it kind of puts that into perspective for you. Exactly. There's a fourth issue I like to bring up, and I'd, I'd love to get your opinion on this, and that's the, the concept, um, and, and I don't know if it's a voting issue, but it is kind of what we're seeing, I think, between... You know, when we talked about the difference in Likud and Tikva Chadashav, New Hope, and that's the issue of, um, I'll, I'll call it uh, a belief and a trust in the institutions of the state versus an underlying belief that there is a bias, maybe even a conspiracy um, of an elite, an unelected elite that controls the institutions of democracy and kind of a wanting to unseat that. So if we're talking about the press, um, the judiciary, and, and academia specifically, um, you know this this belief that there there's a deep state conspiracy 
versus everything's fine. We need to believe in the institutions. Of I the think state. it's a Zionist conspiracy. Maybe. Well, I think in both camps now you see the tendency to uh, believe in uh, conspiracy theories. Um, but but usually, you know, there is a tendency, and again, it's a global tendency. This is not unique to Israel. You see it all over the world of mostly right-wing uh, parties and leaders using this populist message of, you know, we, we need to unseat the elites who control the press and control the, the judiciary and control all kinds of other offices. You know, this is something that leaders use for you know for political benefit do they really believe that the judiciary is against them some of them do some of them probably don't uh, it's a useful message for them and sometimes it's also correct you know there is israel did have a history of a very left-wing press you know only in recent decades you could see more people from the right who get to have a real voice in the main, you know, mainstream TV stations and mainstream journals and newspapers in Israel. Uh, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, most columnists and most commentators on TV and radio and, and newspapers were on the left. And, you know, the right... Right-wing Israelis felt that they needed to, to some, some, in some way compensate for such uh, deficiencies, and they were constantly complaining about them. And now, you know, you look at this and you say, Yo, well, you've been, for the last 30 years or 40 years, you've been in power. Right. You know, st stop, you know, bitching about being... The, the minority, the, the outcast minority and the, the people who are discriminated against. Um, so, I mean, I mean that's kind of a, a question here is, and, and that's kind of where my thinking always goes is, okay, the right has been in power here mostly, not continuously, since the mid-90s. So can they still complain that Well, I'd say f since the early 80s, but... Okay, okay, yeah, if you want to go back to Begin, absolutely, even more to the point. So can the right still make that claim that they are, um, that there's a bias, a left-wing bias in these institutions, can they still make the claim that, um, you know, society is tilted in the left's favor? Well, they can still make the claim, and I think it's a valid claim, that uh, most in most mainstream uh, media outlets, the left is still much more dominant than its fair share in the population. They can still make the claim uh, that's valid that in universities, in academia, uh, left-wing um, groups dominate most faculties, and that's, you know, they, they'll say it's problematic. And they can still make the claim that the um, legal elite is more to the left than it should be. Now, where should it be? Right, that's yeah. an ideological that debate. But I think it's a fair claim to make that if you look at the Supreme Court, this is not a conservative right-wing Supreme Court. It is still more to the left than the actual population in Israel. Do you want the Supreme Court to be like the Knesset, a, an exact representation of, um, of the population? I'm not sure that you do. Yeah. But again, you know, if you're a right-wing person and you look at uh, Supreme Court decisions and you see time and again 
that you disagree with the premise, with the ideological premise, and you know, pretending that this is just legalities would not be would not be uh, genuine. There are ideological tendencies of um, judges that have impact on the way they decide cases. And these tendencies tend to be more to the left than the population, and that's why right-wing leaders and constituents still complain about these elites. Now, is it, is it an appealing, is it sexy to still whine after being in power for 40 years? It seems to work. It seems to work. I, I find it unappealing. I think, you know, it's time, it's time for the right to stop whining and begin, you know, you got the power. <laughs> do, act, act like it. <laughs> yeah, do what you have to do and, Cover. you know, stop complaining. But it, since it's working for politicians, then they will use it. Why? D demographics might be one answer. But why is, why did the left... And even the center left, why did it become so weak in the Israeli context? No, I, I don't think demographics is the answer. The, 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 re, the answer is, uh, you know, there is this famous American saying uh, um, of the neocons, we were mugged by reality. Israelis <laughs> were mugged by reality. You're talking uh, about uh, the post-Oslo period. I'm talking about, you know, during the 90s, uh, you know, there was the Rabin government, the Oslo process, then Netanyahu came to power but was replaced fairly quickly by another left-wing government uh, headed by Ehud Barak. Right. Then came the Kim David summit, which collapsed the second intifada. The second intifada ruined the idea of the two-state solution. Then came the evacuation of, of the Gaza Strip, the, um, you know, the, right, right. the disengagement. 2005 disengagement. Exactly, disengagement by, by Ariel Sharon. That move destroyed the idea of uh, unilateral withdrawals from territory, and the left was left with no relevant ideas to propose. So, so what about today? And in two weeks' time, we're going to have Mickey Gitson on our show, who's uh, a big voice on the Israeli left, and I'm going to ask a, a left-winger what happened to the left, okay? We're going to... Um, try to attack from that angle, but but as a political columnist who kind of sits outside of this, what happened to the left? I mean, okay, Oslo fell, most Israelis are in this kind of, yeah, maybe two-state solution would be nice one day, but we're not there right now. They they do have other ideas on religion and state. Like you said, 70, 60, 60%, 70%, definitely over 50% of Israeli Jews are in favor of the, you know, the social issues, the religion and state issues that um, that the left, if we're talking about whether from merits to Yeshatid, are proposing, why can't they reclaim their bigger place in society? Well, because for many voters, these aren't the crucial issues. Because for many leaders on the left, these are, aren't the crucial issues. And because as much as we complain about, you know, religion and state issues in Israel, for most Israelis... This is more a nuisance than a real disruption. You, know? right. you don't wake up in Israel every morning saying, oh, there is so much religious oppression in Israel. You know, Some people do. Some people definitely do. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, they, they complain, but, but if you look at their actual lives, you know, I, I, I dislike the Israeli rabbinate. 
but I never get to deal with the Israeli. But I don't care about the Israeli rabbinate. I can ignore it. For most of my life, I can just ignore it. So I ideally, I would like to see a better rabbinate or maybe even not even to have a rabbinate. But do I see it as the number one priority for me when I go to the polls? I don't think so. It's it's not it's not a life and death issue. It's not a it's not a dramatic thing that that people feel strongly about. It's very present on the on the you know in the debate spheres because it's controversial and you can always come up with you know strong statements etc. But Overall, people wake up in the morning, not think, they don't think about the rabbinate. They, they think about, you know, buying a new coffee machine. Um, you know, terrorism, that's a real thing. Economic crisis, that's a real thing. Pandemic, that's a real thing. We don't talk about terrorism anymore. It's not an issue in our day-to-day lives right now. Right, and, and that's why you're, I, I had such difficulty answering your question about uh, right and left. Yeah. Because Look, because uh, the Palestinian it, issue and terrorism is is no longer a big thing. It it really seems like there is, and I have this conversation all the time with Dan. I have this conversation all the time with my wife, and it definitely enters into what does we're talking she about. listen to the she podcast? does listen she to does, the podcast, okay. and she'll be she'll be cool with the comments I made just, before. Just I wanted own. to make sure. <laughs> it it seems, and Dan and I grew up in, in in the United States, and you also are an expert when it comes to understanding American politics. The American system is one that's based on represent. Rep, it's a representative democracy. It's based on Politicians becoming elected because they represent a particular constituency, and they a also geographic, be- a geographic constituency, constituency right. and they are belonging to a party in the two-party system. But they're not going to be reelected by their district if they're a, a congressman in the House of Representatives, or their state if they're a senator, uh, if they don't deliver on what the constituents' goals and policy agenda might be, and they feel accountable to them. So they may be willing to go against party lines if, let's say, their district happens to have a particular interest in mind that, that, that you know, they have to support. Here in Israel, that's not the case. We don't have a geographical-based representative democracy. Our politicians, their chief, uh, we've been talking about this you know, throughout the course of this, of this episode, their chief interest is to remain in power, but they don't have to please any of the voters at the end of the day in order to remain in power as much as they have to maybe please the party apparatus or the party leadership to be on the on the list. They, they don't think in the way that, let's say, an American politician would think. The, the concept of accountability, I would argue, and this is going to be controversial, is so alien to the Israeli body politic that there isn't even a word for accountability in Hebrew. It doesn't exist. It's not a concept here in politics. Uh, I would think, and I might argue, that if... There was the concept that we had a system, and this is kind of like it's, it doesn't matter because it's a hypothetical. We don't have the system. But if we did, where accountability was important, that some of the issues which we've said here are not super important to the voters might actually be important issues because we want to buy things. We want our families to, to, to live stable and prosperous lives. We want people to be able to afford housing. We want people to be able to grow up in a country where they feel that they have a chance. Uh, the issues of terrorism and, and how we deal with them you know they're not there right now, but we have other issues: the coronavirus and the pandemic, and what's being done with the, with the pandemic. I mean, these are real issues that are affecting this country right now, 
And with the notable exception of Naftali Bennett, I don't hear the other po- parties talking about it at all. I mean, we're, it's almost like we're so detached in many ways from the reality that currently plagues us that we can't even have a, have a, have a serious political conversation in this country at a national level about issues that are actually, you know, at our door. They're here. We're living in them. We, there, there's over a million people, uh, don't quote me on the number, that are unemployed in this country. I was recently one of them. I'm recently back to work. But I don't hear anybody talking about what their plans are for these people. And a lot of their unemployment is going to end on June, on June 30th. I mean, that's a ticking time bomb. What? I mean, honest to God, I, I'm not, I'm not uh, a political intellectual, but I am a voter. What the hell? Like, when is somebody here going to wake up and say, you know what? Enough. Like, there, there are serious issues we have to start dealing with, and these people are our voters, and we need to be accountable to them. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm not sure we agree on this. You know, okay. I, I, I can identify with your frustration, but there is, you know, you're right to say that Israelis do it in a different way. Uh, but this doesn't mean that there is no accountability, and I'll give you an example, okay? Just a year ago, a certain party, Blue and White, was the largest party in Israel, and the leaders of the party promised not to join a coalition under Netanyahu. They broke the promise, and they're down from 35 seats to 5 seats. That's accountability. The voters did not appreciate the fact that the leaders of this party committed themselves to a certain notion and then broke their promise whatever excuses they made and i thought their excuses were valid at the time the voters did not forget and did not forgive and that's why you see um, um, uh, Benny Gantz, That's a, challenge a year a year ago, a prospective prime minister, is on the fighting for his yeah. political life. So I don't think there's no accountability. I think we just do it in a slightly different way. It's true we don't have geographic areas here. We don't we we do it in a different way because Israeli politics is all about constant compromise between parties. You have to maintain a coalition. So you always have to come up with compromise. You, you know, just looking at it, showing you a plan. Here's what I'm going to do. It's, it's, it's worthless. Unless you, you can bring 70 seats yourself. It's right. worthless because, because I know and you know that at the end of the day, if, even if you are highly successful and you get 50 seats, you still need 11 more seats and you will have to compromise to get those seats, which means that your plan is not going to be implemented the way you present it to me. But doesn't it seem bizarre that nobody talks about uh, the pandemic beyond policy no, I, of how I, to I, fight I, the pandemic? I'm talking about the economics of the pandemic. Well, I think Netanyahu is constantly talking about the way he handled the pandemic and the fact for which he deserves credit that Israel is the... Yep. World, a world leader in vaccinating the population. He takes the credit for it, and he wants people to vote for him. No, no, no. I'm not talking about how the pandemic is being handled health-wise. I'm talking about the economic impact of the pandemic on, on the Israeli economy. So, uh, you know, I, I listen to Yair Lapid. He talks about it. To Bennett, he talks about it. Um, you know, and, and what is there to say? 
we don't want people to be unemployed. Well, look, it's, it's like I remember when the Gaza rockets were falling on, on southern Israel and Benny Gantz was running for prime minister. The former chief of staff of the IDF was running for prime minister along with Bugi Alon, another former chief of staff, and along with Gaba Ashkenazi, another former chief of staff. You had three former top IDF generals running against Netanyahu and they couldn't present an alternative strategy to what Netanyahu was doing on Gaza. So I, I don't know, but if, if I take your accountability point, I'll, I'll push back here and I'll say, maybe in the US because the parties are so stable, and, and by the way, nobody ever put into law that there can only be two parties in the US. It's just kind of, right. I, I heard the great free economics talking about how it's a duopoly that just kind of came to be and they control the, the, the national level politics. Um, because those two parties are so stable, and because the voters are not on a national slate, but on an individual local level, you have individual accountability for a politician to his uh, to to his constituency, which is a geographic base. Here, what I think we have, and I think the blue and white is a perfect example. In Kadima, before that, and and, and et cetera, we can say we have maybe uh, not individual um, um, accountability, but maybe party accountability. Um, where if the party doesn't deliver, it it could literally be gone, gone next election cycle. And you can't imagine the Democratic Party disappearing in the United States. You know, you say, okay, this congressman comes and goes or congresswoman. But here, blue and white might not be a party next election cycle. And, uh, you know, we even have a number of parties we didn't bother mentioning because they saw that they were, pol- they literally popped up overnight. They saw that they weren't going to pass a threshold and they dropped out before it even started. Um so, so I don't know. I, th- I think you do, but it just plays out in a different way here. But, but I get your point that there's just maybe not enough debate about the issues here, and, and because, like we said, we're, we're it's all about personalities these times, and there there isn't a debate because there also isn't a clear alternative on a vision of how to deal with the issues unless you go to the extremes. There's who can do it better, you know, and Netanyahu can do it better. No, he's betraying his actual vision. So Sar is going to do it better. Lupid's going to do it better. Uh, let, let me remind you one thing that we tend to forget. Our incompetent, worthless, good-for-nothing politicians, they took a country of 600,000 people from a, a, dirt a poor. delicate, uh, you know, newborn to a, almost a world power in 70 years. So they must be doing something right. Or you could say the people are doing something right. Well, the people are doing something right, and the politicians are representing the people. And you know, it, it's not it's not logical to think that Israeli politics is especially bad when you look at the trajectory of of Israel's development in the last seventy years. Something you know, something's got to give. If we are doing so well, and our politicians are are so incompetent you know how do you reconcile these two these two facts and and i think maybe our politicians are just as bad as all politicians <laughs> i think they are i think there's i, I think all, you you hit the nail on the head i, yeah, I don't think I, that they're any better or worse than any, anywhere else and i think that for many people myself included and dan remembers me from many 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 years ago you know i think that this this year in particular may have broken me in terms of my in, in enthusiasm about politics uh, it, that that it, I can it, understand. It, you know, you know, it's a it's a dramatic crisis. Both, both the political crisis and the pandemic uh, together. You know, it's 
these aren't easy times right. in Israel and many people are frustrated and feel alienated from the political sphere but you know this will pass eventually this will pass and we'll go back to normal and hopefully you know our politicians will go back to being as annoying as they've always <laughs> been and not more <laughs> you said the, the voter gets the politician they deserve basically exactly. Exactly. I, I want to use this to, to jump to your latest project uh so many projects you seriously yeah i wonder which which, which one latest project I, i have to say i have to say uh, um i have a lot of respect for for you Shmulek, in that you uh, i try to be a multitasker like you but i'm just not nearly as successful at managing my time do you um, two work I'm until just, f- i'm just being mediocre at many things do you two that's, you know what Shmuel, but, but that's you, a strategy do you just do you two work until four in the morning regularly i don't do it regularly Until four in the morning? No, no I, do I sleep at four in the morning. I work till two regularly. Sometimes I, I get lost in myself. But no, you know what? That's an interesting point. You say you do a lot of things mediocrely. I think you're being, you're being uh, humbly generous with yourself, if that's a, a thing, because you do them quite well. But that's a strategy. You know, some people say, I'm going to do one thing, and I'm going to do it supremely well. And um, you know, the, I'm going to take the way you describe yourself. You, you take a lot of things... And you do a pretty good job with them, um, you know, at a decent level. And that's kind of like a lifestyle approach, right? Um, I think it's a matter of, yeah, it's a lifestyle approach. It's also a matter of personality, you know, that, that's, that's the way I am. I'm, I'm too curious to be focused on just one thing. Uh, there are many things that I want to do. I can do all of them, but I try to do as many of them as I possibly can. Yeah, and, and I think it's something I've kind of taken from you in our, I've known you for about five years now, uh, something that I've kind of taken, not just from you, but, but I've tried to learn to do this from you because I've also have a lot of things and, and uh, so I'm kind of trying to dance in a few different parties and I think you, Benny, are, you know, you have like one thing you do and you do it very well. You're in the, the tourism business and, um, you know, it's, it's kind of like we, we try to yin and yang each other on I had this. a really busy year. Yeah, right? But they're coming back. The, coming tour, back, the tourists coming back. are coming back. No, but your latest project we talked about is Hamadad. Yeah, hamadad.com uh, for Mad- those who want to visit our website. And the, Madad in Hebrew means? Madad is an index. The, or the yeah. indicator, right? Or the indicator. Right. Yeah. So, so what is this project? Um, tell, us how you, t- tell us what it is and, and then how you got into it and what you're trying to do. Well, it's, it's an attempt to, um, to do something somewhat similar to what you see in a Um, websites such as Real Clear Politics yeah. or 538 to have a site that combines um, data journalism, data gathering, uh, aggregation of information, in, in our case also a lot of research. Uh, I partnered with one of my colleagues here at JPPI, Noah Slepkov, And with the university professor that we already mentioned, the Professor Camille Fuchs. The, the noted pollster, yeah. Exactly. And, and what we do is, you know, we both aggregate all polls and have this formulation to uh, present a poll, a poll of polls. And we have, and we do research and we run polls ourselves and we look into data and try to under, uh, understand where Israel is going. Uh, currently, we focus mostly on election stuff, but you know, in two weeks, we can go back to look at other things as well. Until the next election, only a few months from now. Until the next election. So what are you doing? I mean, this is kind of a bigger question is, is you know, um, if we jump back to 2016, 
we all went to sleep, at least here in this country, we all went to sleep thinking Hillary Clinton was going to be president because all the polls showed that Hillary Clinton was going to be president. And we were all shocked. I think maybe even Trump supporters were shocked to find that Donald Trump became the prime minister. More recently here, um, you know, one of the recent-ish elections, we thought Bougie Herzog could be a viable candidate for prime minister to find out that, you know, Likud ended up getting five or six more seats than they polled. We always talk about this kind of what the pollsters are missing and where are you trying to fit into this, you know, gap, we could call it? Well, first of all, I don't think the pollsters are missing that much. I think most pollsters do an honest job and most of them do better than their image suggests. Uh, uh, if you want to try, try to go through election one election cycle without looking at any polls and see how well you do, you know, projecting the uh, yeah, the, out, the outcome of the election. You know, pollsters cannot, if you expect the polls to tell you the exact outcome of the election, you just have your, you know, you need to recalibrate your expectations. Mm. Uh, pollsters aren't here to tell us the outcome of the elections because if they could do that, we, we wouldn't need any election. They are here to give us as much information uh, that they can gather on the tendencies of, of voters. And, you know, this is incomplete. It's like, you know, when you, read, uh, when you read the newspaper in the morning, you know, a story about, you know, Israel having secret negotiation with Saudi Arabia. You do not assume that the journalist knows everything, every little detail from these negotiations. You know, these are secret negotiations. What you see in the paper is a partial truth, is what we can, what we can find about this process and what we can tell you at this point. You should treat the polls in, this, in a similar way. This is what we can show you now. This is what we know to the extent that we know it. And it's not the whole truth. It's not an accurate description of the final outcome. Uh, we are not telling you in advance who's going to win and who's going to lose. We are just giving you the information that we can get. Uh, and what we try to do at themadad.com is to take as much information as we can and use some innovative tools, you know, some innovative statistical tools to, um, you know, to... to um, make it even more accurate or even more understandable and in some instances look at things that other people aren't looking at. What, what, is, what might be an innovative statistical tool? For example, uh, you know, in the last two weeks we were analyzing data that we gathered on the tendencies of, uh, of Israelis, not by asking Israelis who they're going to vote for, but rather by asking them to give a number of uh, probability that they vote for each party. Mm. And then you can say, okay, people who, uh, whose first choice is labor, what are the other options that they still see as viable? And what number do they put on these other options? So for example, for these two for the, the two left-wing parties, labor and merits, we can say that there are more, more voters of merits who look at labor as a valid alternative 
than voters of labor who look at merits as a valid alternative. And, you know, this means something. So right. these are the kind of tools that we use. And Israeli pollsters, especially those who work for the networks, etc., who only want to get, you know, just give me a number, just tell me how many seats each party is going to get, so we, we can look at more nuanced data and, you know, give some more, you know, advanced advanced course on Israeli politics for those who are interested in, in such ideas. And, and you mentioned that after the elections, uh, you, you would be studying other issues. What might other issues that Hamadad be interested in collecting data on be? Well, you know, the, the, the last study I, I did with, uh, with Professor Fuchs was about Israeli Judaism, and it was mostly about, you know, religiosity and culture. Uh, what people think about when they think about Jewishness, about Israeliness. Uh, but, but, you know, I'm interested in many things, what, what books people are reading, what music they like or dislike, uh, how they look at different ideas and ideals, you know, how they view world leaders such as uh, Joe Biden, and um, and you know uh, uh, Boris Johnson in in the UK, there are, there are many things that we can talk about and look at uh, from um, you know the impact of the pandemic on the lives of people to the uh, shifts in in tendencies, uh, cultural tendencies of people. Uh, you know the, the field is is really very wide. Um, it's. I always have more ideas than I have time to implement them. So my well, concern, I think that's a good thing. It's, it's, my concern is not about finding questions that I'm interested in. It's about finding the time and the resources to ask all these questions. That's fascinating. Um, in, in the, you know, before we started taping, we were kind of having a discussion about this. And I noticed, you know, I, I follow them a dot. I read uh, some of the articles you put out. There's a slight difference between... Uh, the aggregate of polling, which is kind of what Real Clear does, right? And um, and your metrics, your madad, um, and, and you said something that you you were using a crowdsourcing uh, method. So can you just explain the difference of what maybe uh, traditional polling does versus what you're trying to do? Well, we do these two different things in a, in in parallel. We one thing we do is we take all the polls and we aggregate them and we apply some mathematic formulation and, and we come up with a new number that is the aggregate number that we feel is, uh, is the right number. And what we also do, and this is, you know, the, it is the first time we're trying this. We do it in partnership with uh, um, Khan News, with the Channel 11. Right, this is the, like the national broadcaster. Exactly. Yeah. And, and what we do is we ask people to project the outcome of the election. So people get in, they register, they give us a lot of background information about themselves, and then they can project the outcome of the election time and again. They can do it. We started it about three months ago, and they come back every day and change their projection. And we follow the trajectory of projections versus the trajectory of polls, it, Interesting. it is slightly different. And you know, at the, at the end of the process, when we have the outcome of the election, we will be able to see whether the uh, crowdsourcing corrected some of the errors that were made by pollsters. Because 
What people are able to do, which pollsters cannot do, is to say, well, I know that currently Yamina is getting 12 seats, but I also remember that in the last three or four rounds of election, Yamina always polled better than the actual outcome. Yeah, they underperform. So, right. so I'm going to factor it in and I'm going to project a slightly lower number of seats for Yamina. So in this way, we might find out, or might not, but we might find out that the, the average projection of people is better than the um, aggregate number of polls. polls. Because they're, they're taking into account their own memory. Exactly. Right? Likud they look generally overperforms. They look at the polls, and correct the polls are, are according to what they feel or understand or a gut feeling or whatever. How many people are participating in this? Oh, th- many thousands. Thousands. Uh, yeah, yeah. We we have we have a, a panel of uh, many thousands of people. And do you and know if they're at all representative of Israeli society? We weigh them to uh, be rep- You know, all of them taken together are not representative but since we have so many people participating we can weigh them in such way to represent the actual population of israel and if people aren't familiar with how surveys and polling is done um you know a lot of kind of the quick polls that we see in newspapers on a regular basis you know jerusalem post or channel 12 this weekly poll says you know likud will do this and, and labor will do that they're usually what taking 500 700 people and doing kind of a quick survey right and 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 from just kind of my limited experience with this and and um, with kind of the things we do here at JPPI also I've I've learned that you know once you get over a thousand even to the 2,000 range you're talking about a much more minimal um, error statistical. You, you, you can you can be more accurate and also it gives you the benefit of being able to look into specific groups especially in cases such as the one we have now with with a number of parties, three, four, maybe even five parties uh, in the danger zone, just just below or just above the electoral threshold, you want to have the ability to look at specific groups and try to understand, well, is this party of four or 3.8 to 4.2 seats is this party going to pass? Uh, you need more people to to get to the bottom of it, and you know we try to have more people in our um, aggregate games and polls by which to again we. I want to be humble about this. I, sure. I'm I'm not yet sure that our numbers are going to be better than the numbers of other pollsters. But we we'll, try we'll to. We'll find out in late March. We'll, we'll find out. We'll find out. Um, That's it, why it's better for me to be your guest before exactly. election day, not after. Although, although we will offer you as soon as the final count is in, if you want to send us an update, uh, kind of a, a one paragraph update comparing the results versus your projections versus the pollsters' projections, and we'll be happy to. Do, pollster, do, do pollsters get disappointed if they if they get it really wrong? Sure, it means. Accountability. And you know, every every you know, the, the morning after election day is always, you know, in Israel they call it the Yom Keeper of the pollsters. <laughs> you know, every time people complain because of because the pollsters didn't get it exactly right. And again, it's 
the problem is with expectation, not with result. Right. Yeah. Sometimes the problem is also with the result, but mostly it's a problem well, with the expectation. You're a bit like the weatherman in that, right? Exactly. Exactly. Uh, you you yeah. need to put your anger on somebody. And, um, uh, they, they, especially people who are frustrated with the outcome of the election. You know, okay. Who are yeah. there? <laughs> is there a competition amongst pollsters? Like after the day of the election, do you call the pollsters and it's like... Oh, you got it more wrong than you got it more right than than I did. So you're this. There, there is that. there is a tendency of you know media outlets to um, you know to advertise it if they were the most accurate. So if your poster was closest to the actual outcome, you'll you'll make a big fuss because you know it gives you some credibility for the for the next election, right. namely. For six six months from now, six <laughs> months from now, and also yeah. l- last last question on this for me, in, a, in it, you know, oftentimes the the candidates in the election, whether it's in the United States or here, they'll they'll be quick after the exit polls of the election to, de- you know, to to declare their win or to concede, and then only in America, well, several not, months, not so quick to not to, not so quick, but you know, several months yeah. afterwards or a month and a half afterwards, you'll have actual results. Could we face a situation in Israel that's similar to the U.S. where uh, you may not know for for a while who the definitive winner of an election would be? Oh, it's possible, and I, I think this time uh, could could be it. Remember that we have election day just four days be- before Pesach, before Passover. Um, if if the uh, outcome is very close, if we if there's one party that is really hanging in there, but you're not yet certain, uh, we might have to wait until after Pesach to know the actual result. It will not take weeks, but we're it, a smaller country, right? Yeah, yeah. It, it, but it can take a week or even ten days. And nobody's working during Pesach. Exactly. Yeah. So 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 you it it might take a few days or a week or ten days to know the the actual outcome. And as for, you know, uh, election night errors, we had them before. Well, in, in 1996, everybody went to bed thinking Shimon Peres is going to be the prime minister and woke up in the morning to find out that it's actually Netanyahu. So, so such, hmm. such common errors happen all the time. Um, when you mentioned, th- I wonder... Do a generation check on on our listeners here. When you said danger zone, how many people went to Top Gun? Oh my god, I was thinking about the <laughs> right. entire episode. I'm like, I've been hearing the song in my mind. Right. Um, Tom Cruise on his motorcycle right. uh, racing against the plane. Um, very quickly, last I think political question we'll get into. Um, according to your uh, predictions, your most recent predictions of Hamadad, can you give us a sense of what the outcome will be if the election was held today? Uh, Netanyahu is very close to have the ability to form a 61-member coalition with? with, under the condition that Naftali Bennett and Yamina uh, decide to join him. Because there are also other options for coalitions, so it will be really up to Bennett to decide whether he wants a very um, narrow coalition with Netanyahu they're really now at sixty-one or so. So you know it can it it's a it's a give and take situation, uh, and we are not yet certain. And we still have uh, almost two weeks uh, to election day. But it's quite possible that we will have a very narrow right-wing religious coalition. Depends on Bennett's decision. What's the 
likelihood of a realistic alternative? Can you see some kind of Benetzar Lapid coalition? It's possible. If that's what Bennett wants, um, you know, the issue here will be the ego of Saar and Lapid. Because if, if, you know, if Bennett has the key to having a coalition, he can tell them, look, I have the smallest party here. Of the three. Of the three. Yeah. And yet I'm willing to join you on the condition that I'll be prime minister. That would be, uh, just, just as an observer, I mean, that's like, bring out the popcorn, we got to see this you one know, unfold. It's, it's a test yeah. for them. If what they really want is to get rid of Netanyahu, they should probably say, yes, okay. We'll, we'll have you as prime minister by way of, of you know, unseating Netanyahu, and okay, I'll that, be the defense I mean, minister, the foreign minister. That would be we'll, a bold bold move on the part of Bennett if he played the if he played that card that's true uh, Lapid is polling higher than the three of the, of the three of them right Lapid is is uh, polling around 20 seats um, and he's and his trajectory is uh, in an upward trajectory so he's been, so he's been kind of playing quiet right 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 I think he even said um, um, the other day that he does not necessarily expect to become prime minister because he knows that for him to form a coalition under him is almost impossible. Um, both Bennett and Saar already said that they might sit with him in a coalition but not under him. So, you know, he might have to say, okay. Give up on his dream. That's the best I can do. I can be foreign minister for three years or four years. I cannot be prime minister. I'm going to live with that um, because what I really want is, is to unseat Netanyahu. Interesting. Um, so kind of uh, maybe we'll put politics aside because you, you could easily talk about it for another three hours, but uh, certainly with you. Um, you are a book publisher, and maybe this is kind of... Well, I'm not a publisher. I'm the editor. You're the editor. I'm the editor for a publishing house, and a nonfiction editor for a publishing house. And, and um, I, I mean, just from my interactions with you, I know you've um, edited and kind of brought to light, I don't know, that's not even English saying, to, to, but uh, some really interesting books, some of which have gone on in their English and other language versions to international acclaim. Um, one of them is Sapiens and Yuval Noah Harari. That's true. Um could we say you kind of like discovered him or were you just uh, like you put out his... Well, he discovered himself. <laughs> I, was, I was lucky enough to get, to get uh, 10 pages from Sapiens. I, I was the editor who found the first 10 pages of Sapiens to be fascinating and to, uh, and to sign uh, uh, Professor Harari um, and, and make him, you know, complete his first book. So it's it's unbelievable. I, I read, I was telling Benny, he's got a reader. I listened to the audio version, I should say. Um, and I just heard him on a podcast recently, a different podcast, obviously. Um, fascinating. But w what's it like to be involved in, in a book that has really gone global? I mean, like on the highest level. It's thrilling. Um, again, I have, I have very little to do with his success. He succeeded because of his great talent and because he's a, uh, a great thinker. I was just lucky to be there at the right place at the right time and to say, yeah, the, the, that, that's a great book. I want to publish it. Uh, and it's thrilling to see such 
um, worthy author um, doing so well? Yeah, I, I love to see, um, and it's almost that it's second. You know, we love to say, "Oh, he's Israeli. Look at how well he's doing on the international stage." You know, kind of have that Jewish instinct. Oh, he's Jewish. You know, um, but um, it's really a magnificent project. Um, what What are kind of some of the other um, major books or, or even ma- not major books that, that are kind of stick out in your mind that you've really enjoyed working on or authors that you've uh, helped discover in that kind of sense? Well, uh, in, in early April, uh, an English version of an Israeli book is going to come out. It's a book by author named Einat Natan. She's a um, parentship Parenthood Advisor. Mm. Uh, her book in Israel called Chaim Sheli, which, which you, yeah, you can't really translate to any uh, proper English, um, was a huge bestseller in Israel. Uh, it's coming out in, in America, and I think it's a worthy book. We just published her second book. Um, so, you know, it's... It's not quite like Harari, you know. He wrote sure. a history, philosophy book. She, she's writing uh, a parenting book. These are very different books, but they are similar in the se- in the sense that both that are high quality and highly successful. You know, for 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 a book for a book editor, you know that some books are going to be eh, not very good, but still very successful. Some books are going to be magnificent, but not quite successful. And it's, it's the rare occasion when you see a book that is both high quality and high success. And, you know, these two authors are uh, great examples of, of such thing. Um, have you, you also work with Micha Goodman. Uh, I, who, I, well, I work with many other great authors, yeah. Micha Goodman, and and um, uh, Matty Friedman. Sure. Uh, so so yeah, there, there are many many great authors. These are, these are authors who are very popular in Israel who have managed to, to to expand beyond an Israeli audience. And and we publish in Israel, you know, Daniel Kahneman and Dan Ariely, and and many other world renowned authors uh, that we that we you know translate to Hebrew and 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 make Israelis familiar with. So yeah, being a book editor is a is a great great joy. Do you um, is it economically viable for people to write books these days, and then specifically within the Israeli market because it's a smaller market? No, no, no. People should write books if they want to write books. It's it's not a it's not a commercial enterprise. Um, you know, for some books that become highly successful. You know, the aftermath uh, proves to be also a commercial enterprise, but you only know it in ret- retrospect, and it happens very rarely. So most people, if, when I'm approached by people who want to write books, I my advice for them is do it only if you want to do it knowing in advance that it's going to be a failure. <laughs> because the likelihood... A commercial failure. A commercial failure. Yeah. Because, because uh, in all likelihood, that's that's the way it's going to be. You should not invest in writing a book if your main, if if you are after commercial success, you know, invest in in real estate. Books aren't for you. Yeah, I heard um, um, 
someone I've been listening to lately said he wrote a book, uh, and, and it was very commercially. But he said he wrote the book because it's something that he thought it, it was harder for him to not write the book. It was something that he said, um, uh, Tim Ferriss, something that I got into the Tim Ferriss show uh, recently, if right. you're familiar with it. And he said, uh, it's like he, he needed this book to be out there and no one had written it, so he, he felt he had to sit down and and write it himself that's the that's the uh, proper motivation for any writing books can you just give us an idea um you know but some authors and probably a few but do make it um at least commercially viable what's the break even point for your average author you know how many copies does a book need to sell for in israel yeah uh, around three thousand books, I'd say. And then, what's considered a success, uh, a, a commercially viable success in the Israeli? More, more than three thousand books. <laughs> ten thousand is a is a real success. Twenty thousand is a almost dramatic success, and fifty thousand or eighty thousand happens, but it's very rare. Very rare in, in the Israeli context. Exactly. Yeah, and, and, and it's important to make. You know, the point that those numbers definitely seem very small to our American audience. And we're talking about 3,000 books. A bit, or a bit or our Indian listeners. Uh, l- l- let me tell you that, that there are many books in America who do not sell 3,000 copies or 5,000 copies. Even in America, the number of books that people sell is much smaller than you might imagine. To, to make an American bestseller, of course, there are these authors who sell millions of books. But for nonfiction books in America, if they sell 20,000 books or 40,000 books, that's great. Wow. So what it, given that, and given that there's so much competition for, you know, between blogs and magazines and online magazines and podcasts and vlogs and YouTube channels, I mean, there's so much competition over people's attention. There's so much competition to put out new information or new spins on information. How do you, as a, as a editor who, who, who gets to also decide if this book will be published by your company or not, um, how, how do you decide if it's worth your time? I read. I, I read the book. I mean, is that, I, is that kind of your talent in this, you, to, to be able, is like a talent well, scout? whether I have talent, that's for my publisher to say. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he employs me for the last 12 years, so I so guess I'm doing, doing okay. You're doing something, right? I'm yeah. doing okay. Um Look, you, you, you read the book and you think about the, the market of readers, the, the readership, and you try to understand whether there is enough uh, market, uh, large enough market for, for such book, whether, whether there is a way for you to sell this product to a large enough audience. And, you know, it's... It's very easy for me to say, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm the editor of Harari and Goodman and Einat Natan and Friedman and all these uh, successful authors. I had many failures as well. Right. You know, there are many books that I published and weren't as successful and some of them were wonderful books. So, you know, you win some, you lose some, and if you win slightly more than you lose... The, the, that's yeah, that's yeah. success. Then you still have a job. You, you mentioned you've had some authors that you thought were going to be a great book that turned out not to be commercially viable. Have you um, had some that turned out to be way more successful than you imagined? Well, Harari, of sure. course, is 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 the most dramatic example. Harari uh, was a case in which uh, he had a huge debate with my publishers. My publishers did not want the book. Did not believe did in not it. Did not want it. Yeah, I do not reveal any great secret here. They they tell this story sure. uh, uh, better better than I do. 
uh, they did not want the book. They they read a few pages. They they said they thought, well, you know, it's boring and no no one knows him. Uh, he's not a, a known entity in Israel. So why why bother? Why take the risk? So and this was clearly a dramatic surprise. There were other uh, smaller surprises. I'll give you the example. We published in Israel a translation which took almost 20 years of Gödel Escher Bach. It's, a, it's an American classic on mathematics and music and very com- highly complicated what, what's book. What's it called? Gödel Escher Bach. That's the author. Uh, the author is Douglas Hofstadter. Okay. Um, he won the Pulitzer Prize for this book back in 1980. We published it, I think it was uh, 2011. Wow. Uh, it's, a, it's like uh, 800 page long, filled with mathematical equations, very complicated to understand. It became a very solid success in Israel. We sold, really? I don't know, almost 20,000 copies maybe, or 15,000 copies. It became a solid success. There, there was, there was, there is a, a large enough group of people in Israel who wanted it on their shelves. That's always fascinating. If, if they were reading it or not, I don't know. If, don't know. <laughs> if they were trying, if they were successful in understanding it, it's very complicated to understand. I'm not sure, but, you know, there, there is a large enough group of people who wanted to try. So, fascinating. Yeah, the, the, that was a, a very nice surprise. I, I heard he's, uh, back to Harari, I heard he's coming out now, with, I just ordered this actually, uh, a graphic novel version of came out Came out in Israel yeah. almost half oh, a year Hebrew. ago. It's in Hebrew already. It's already in Hebrew. How many yeah. copies of we, this book? We were the first publisher Tens in the millions. world to, to publish it in Hebrew. Wow! Yeah, so the, I just the graphic, I just, the graphic novel. I just uh, ordered it for my birthday, and uh, I can't wait um, to look at it because the way he described it just sounds. Oh, you'll enjoy it. I will. I'm gonna read it with my son, who's it's, who's turning into a, a wonderful nerd. Fantastic! Great art and great storytelling. Yeah, that's what that's what it's supposed to be. Um, awesome. Um, what well, what are your kind of next projects, or or if you had another five hours in your day, or another day of the week, what what would be the next project you'd want to tackle? I love gardening. <laughs> so um, I, I grow I grow vegetables I, I, I'd be happy to invest more time in growing vegetables in playing music uh, there are many things that I'd like to do and you know there are so many things that are just waiting in line for me to do um, that I, I can't commit on, yeah. on any specific thing but I'll do more th- you know if If everything goes well, I'll, uh, I hope to do many more things. It's, it's somebody, um, somebody I work with and also uh, learn a lot from told me, you're only as good as your next project, right? So, uh, and, and I like to take it as that I, you commented, I have a lot of books in my house and I commented back, I haven't read most of them, but, but I want to, <laughs> I want to get to them. See, you're that guy. You bought the books so that they would be on I, your I, shelf. I don't buy it so that it sits on my shelf. I buy it with with my sincere intention to get to it next. And when I see certain books, I say, I have to read that book. I just don't have time, you know. Well, I, ha- I just planted zucchini for this summer and I'm, There you go. I'm worried about them. So Why? Well, you know, you, ha- you have to wait and see if they, if they grow properly. We started our very first garden in our balcony. And, um, 
and uh, we have a lot of little bugs on the parsley. Do you know? Do you have any tips on on how to deal with those? Okay, maybe. maybe. Let, let's do it after the show. We'll talk about <laughs> after the show. Yeah. Let's talk about parsley after the show. We'll do that on the next episode. What, do you have any post-pandemic plans? Post-pandemic plans? Yeah, you're, the pandemic's over today. It's done. They if, say it's, if, it was, it was a conspiracy. About, they if say, you're they talking tell you about travel, I don't, I don't miss uh, the travel. I don't miss the restaurants. I don't miss the shows. I really like being at home, working. So, the pand- you know, I... It's almost embarrassing to say, but the pandemic <laughs> for me gave you an excuse to, to do what yeah, you wanted. Yeah, it, it was not. It was. It was. There, there were. There was a good side to the pandemic, as you know. I I hate to see other people suffer from it, but for me, I I don't have. I'm I'm not eagerly waiting for the pandemic to be over so I can do this or that. Right. I, I'm I'm kind of with you. I'd like to travel a little bit, but begadol. I kind of like being home. A year, a year off travel was a good. You know, I, there were years in which I had to go uh, to you know ten times, twelve times to, from Israel to other countries. It was exhausting. Yeah. Staying staying at home was was a blessing. I mean, and that's something we hear from a lot of our guests that had to travel a lot in the past for work. And and I always say as a travel professional to them, and and in, in, in answer to that. I'm perfectly fine with that and get it completely. I hope that everybody internalizes that and does it. I hope just that if your plans were to travel for fun to Israel, that you don't stop those yeah, plans. Yeah. Keep, come keep back. coming here. Right. Be come here. Uh, Shmuel Rosner can come and speak to your group. It's not that far for you to travel from your home to the hotel in Tel Aviv. Uh, that that could happen. Come back to Israel. Use Benny as your <laughs> travel company. Hire me or Shmuel to speak to you. Well, I'll be very happy with that. Hire Dan. <laughs> sure. Shmuel, Shmuel wants to stay home and not grow parsley. Yeah. Um, okay, very last thing. I know you, this could easily fill up a whole hour, but if people want to follow your writings, your speaking, your TV appearances, what's the best way to follow you? Well, uh, at Rosner's Domain, at Twitter, um, and you know they can go to themadad.com, although it mo- it's mostly in Hebrew. We'll talk about If that. they want to read me in, uh, in English, they have to go to the jewishjournal.com. Where you write a daily blog there? Uh, it's not. It's not really daily, but it's a few times a week. A few times a week, and they can get your political thoughts and your commentaries and exactly. a, lot of, a lot of things you're doing. And for those who can watch uh, Hebrew language news, you are a couple times a week on Channel Eleven Can News. Fantastic, Shmuel Rosner. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for hosting me. And we'll uh, we'll get an update post elections. Thanks. Thank you. Juanced is a joint creation of Benny Shoulder and Dan Pfefferman. Make sure to subscribe on whatever platform you get your podcasts. For more information and show notes about this and previous episodes, visit us at juanced.com and feel free to hit us with your comments and suggestions. Thank you for tuning in and we'll see you back for the next episode of Juanced.